Good morning, everyone. Before we start this morning, I want to uh, thank all of you who have come up to me after class and given me some additional thoughts in regards to what we've looked at this week. I truly appreciate those thoughts. In fact, some of the thoughts that you've given me, we could put together and have another class. So truly, I appreciate your comments. Let's see if I can get over here. Whoops. Okay. All together. Success is not an accident. It is the inevitable consequence of right thinking and right action. Okay. In a round. Success is not an accident. It is the inevitable consequence of right thinking and right actions. Thanks. We'll get better. This morning we're going to address the thoughts of walk, Because our knowledge of sound doctrine by itself is not sufficient. And I'd ask that you turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, and not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, nor soon angry, nor given to wine, no striker, not given to the filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, Holding fast the faith, excuse me, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not. For filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, 
The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, or idle persons. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, serving thyself, <clears throat> in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, not showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God our, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify <clears throat> unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Look back at chapter 1, just a moment. Starting at verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Look at verse 5. 
For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. In the midst of such a society that appears to have existed in the island of Crete, we can assume that the Ecclesias struggled for their survival. It was only by holding fast the faithful word and by the proclamation of sound doctrine that the pressures of such an environment could be resisted. Because of the innate laziness and godliness of the Cretans, it seemed necessary that a pattern of good works be given to the Ecclesias to follow. And it seems from verse 5 of chapter 1 there that for this reason, Paul left Titus on the island of Crete with a specific purpose of correcting or trying to correct their deficiencies. Fellow students, we suggest that the vast area of the United States is a modern-day Crete on a much larger scale. The multiplication of gross indulgence and the abundance of leisure time has produced a society which existed in Crete. Therefore, for this reason, it seems good that we look at a few of the lessons taught by Titus in this section of Scripture. The need taught by Titus to the Cretans exists very much in our own situation. And that need is that we absorb ourselves in the Word so that we may speak with authority the things befitting the doctrine for which we stand. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 9 once again. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Chapter 2, verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Verse 7. In, the thing, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncor- uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Verse 10, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Without a doubt, Paul's instructions to Titus we're focused around the need for sound doctrine to be emphasized in the Ecclesias of Crete. <clears throat> if you will, look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtst to believe thyself 
Behave thyself in the house of God, which is the ecclesia of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Titus was taught how we should conduct ourselves in the ecclesia of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. The words of Paul in the book of Titus contain strong teachings of the importance of doctrinal understanding, as well as the emphasis on the practical working of these doctrinal truths in the lives of the members of the ecclesia of the living God. We feel that the words of Titus teach us that it is essential that we appreciate and that we recognize that we each have a place of responsibility in God's household. In our lives as individuals, in this in our ecclesias, if excuse me, if our lives as individuals in our ecclesias are in harmony with the gospel that we teach, then as ecclesial members, we will be united together in a common faith. Some of the problems that faced the Ecclesia of Crete included frictions between members of the different social groups, the destructive influence of the society in which they lived, a Judaistic attitude of spirit which felt that one could earn salvation, a compromising of the importance of sound doctrine. Contention developed from trivial matters, while the real meaning of the truth manifested in daily life was being ignored. An indulgence or an accepting approach to the vices of the society which they lived in, and a quick-tempered and violent manner of dealing with each other. We suggest that some of these, or maybe all of these, problems are still with us in our ecclesial lives today. As we look closer at this work, we feel that we are taught of the love that we must have for Yahweh. We are taught of the subjection of our fleshly pride and the need for us to learn to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live lives of self-restraint and uprightness. It is not known when the truth was first preached in Crete, but we do know that people of Crete heard the truth back around Pentecost. Let's look back at Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, we're just going to skip around here a little bit. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under the heaven. Verse 11, Cretes and Arabians were, we do here, excuse me, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. Verse 
<coughs> That's as far as we'll go. We think that it is probable that some of these Cretans would have been baptized subsequently to this occasion. The believers on Crete were initially Jews or Jewish proselytes. Later, the local people accepted the truth, but were influenced greatly by their Jewish pioneers. Paul visits Crete. (coughs) His visit to Crete appears to have taken place after his release from his first Roman imprisonment. And Paul appears to have visited Crete around the year A.D. 64-65 and again around A.D. 66 when Titus was left on the island. It is felt that the epistle is to the to Titus, excuse me, the, the epistle to Titus was written sometimes in the late A.D. 66. Some of the problems existing in the ecclesia, as we've already mentioned, are lack of organization, some strong Jewish influence, pointless arguments over trivial and insignificant points, degrading background of Crete, as we read of in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, disorderliness, violence, quick tempers, arrogant attitude toward authority, addiction to wine, and the importance of sound doctrine not being appreciated. The the importance of sound doctrine not being appreciated. Frequently, the epistle to Timothy and Titus, we know, are grouped together and called the pastoral epistles. And this title might uh, be considered appropriate since they frequently deal with the matters of ecclesial organization. Paul in both Timothy and in Titus speaks of the responsibility of the members and therefore leaves instructions for ecclesial organizations in all ages. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We find that the essential theme of Titus is the truth must be seen in the lives of the members of the Ecclesia. The truth must be seen in the lives of the members of the Ecclesia. There are several passages uh, outline the need for our walk being motivated motivated by our faith. Uh, Look at, uh, and we're back in Titus now, I'm sorry. Titus, uh, look at chapter 1 once again. Passages which outline the need for our walk. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. 
Verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And we've read that one already. We won't read it again. How about verse 14? Who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now I'm beginning to look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain, what? Good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And then verse 14, and let our, and let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. In chapter 1, Paul tells Titus to seek for orderly ecclesia. Seek for an orderly ecclesia. Order having been established, then in chapter 2 he turns his attention to the members themselves and the example that each one must set. And this results in the teachings of seeking for a sound ecclesia. Brothers and sisters, does our individual walk in the truth seek to help develop a sound ecclesia? Does our individual walk seek to help develop a sound ecclesia? Only each of us can answer that question. Paul suggests that an ecclesia which is doctrinally sound is then capable of producing actions that are in accordance with its beliefs and with its standards. The truth, the doctrinal truth, will produce actions according to the principles of godliness. And so in chapter 3 of Titus, Paul teaches Titus to seek for a living ecclesia. And we'd like to spend a few minutes looking at this aspect of a living ecclesia. In chapter 3, Titus concentrates on teaching you and me that we as individual members of the Ecclesia help make it a living Ecclesia by our actions, by our walk, which helps convince others that they truly believe, that we truly believe what we teach concerning those things of the truth. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be, not, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. 
the Cretans are reminded that they have duties toward those in positions of authority in the society in which they live. We are taught that a submissive approach to rulers and authorities is required of those who profess the truth. By showing a kindness and a gentleness to all men, we interest others to look into what the truth is all about. The power of the truth and the constraining influence of God, <clears throat> of the love of God, <clears throat> excuse me, and the forgiveness through Christ of our former wayward life had produced in them a spirit of holy living. God had given them a hope in spite of what they were and not because of it. Paul tells Titus that the brother and sister must be constantly reminded of their responsibilities to excel in doing right in accordance with the profession of their belief. This instruction of re and reminder applies to each of us in our ecclesial responsibilities. In verse 1 of chapter 3, put them in mind. According to Strong's Concordance, the word means to suggest to one's memory. And we see similar thoughts if we look at, look at Jude 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Thank you. <clears throat> Turn to Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance, that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the, us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, I hope and I think we will agree that we need reminding continually as the thoughts of Hebrews, if you'll look at Hebrews chapter 10, gives us. Hebrews 10, and sometimes we don't like to be reminded, I think that's a problem. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Sister Nancy can probably address that issue with you. Sister 10, uh, excuse me, verse, chapter 10, verse 22. <clears throat> Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, 
And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, why are we considering? Why are we reminding each other to provoke unto love and good works? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. To be ready to every good work has been translated to be prepared for every right action. And this translation captures the sense of the both words ready and work, with both words implying action. Good works are more than just doing good. They are as much a part of our walk as our proclamation of the truth. Let's look at the thoughts back in Matthew chapter 5. And I think we've looked at this verse already this week. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. For what purpose? So that they will glorify your Father which is in heaven. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start at verse 11. And having no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. I should have told you to keep your hand in Titus, but back in Titus chapter 3, once again, uh, the walk our virtues of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, teach us to submit. They teach us to obey. They teach us to act right. They teach us to speak no evil. They teach us not to be brawlers. They teach us to be gentle. They teach us to be meek as compared with the vices which we all have had or possibly still have that are listed in verse 3 of chapter 3 in Titus. Foolishness, disobedience, serving our lust, being malicious and envious, being hateful and deceiving. Foolishness is evidence of ignorance. Disobedience is evidence of a hardened heart. Deception is evidence 
of a perverted will. Bondage to lust and pleasures is evidence of a carnal mind. Malice, envy, and hate are proofs of selfishness, pride, and ambition. All of these, fellow students, are the effects of sin. God's kindness and love are set out for us in verse 4 of this third chapter, in contrast to the things that we've just gone through. Kindness in this verse denotes goodness in action. Goodness expressing itself in grace, tenderness, and compassion. And one brother suggests that kindness in this verse means that spirit that is always ready and eager to give. Ready and ready to forgive and bless as required. And the diaglot translates this kindness as goodness. And the word is one of the fruits of the spirit we know that's listed for us in Galatians 5 and verse 22. I think we can relate better to these thoughts if we keep in mind that the abundance of goodness is a characteristic of Yahweh. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, and we'll start at verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And also we should remember that the kindness of God has been expressed to us through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians once again. Chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. I think we've got time this morning. Um, I'd like to have everyone in the audience that is in the truth, that's been baptized, and you're 25 years and older, to please stand up. If you're in the truth, you've been baptized, and you're 25 years and older, please stand. Okay, for those of you 
that are sitting, I'd like for you to look around at these people. I'm one of those people. But look around and see the people that are standing. Okay, this group can sit down. Now those that were seated, being seated, you stand. Everyone that was not standing, please stand. And please, both groups, I didn't mean to discriminate against either group as far as age is concerned. I'm just trying to make a point here. And my comments are to the group that are standing right now. We'd like to caution you that we must become very concerned when we as moms and dads, grandparents, brothers and sisters, stop talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the promises associated with these individuals. These things which make up a kingdom, the things that make up a territory, the things that make up a capital, the things that make up the king, the things that make up the subjects, the things that make up the laws, the things that make up the co-rulers, to you that are standing right now, please do me a favor. You become concerned when the brothers and sisters that you saw standing stop talking about what baptism represents. What alienation is. What the mystery of iniquity is. Who the seed of the woman represents. Who the seed of the serpent is. You begin to question us, those of us that were standing as adults in the truth. When and if we stop talking about the types and the allegories of Scripture. The meaning of the valley of the dry bones. The teachings of the parables. The symbols of revelation. In fact, to you that are standing, if we are truly teaching the one true gospel message, we as your moms, your dads, your grandparents, your brothers and sisters, we will be very redundant. We will be very repetitive. We will keep saying the same things over and over and over again. Affects our spouses. Affects other brothers and sisters in the meeting. And yes, and sadly, even our young people. And these individuals may truly not deserve to be affected by someone else's disagreements. We stop sometimes and we wonder, 
when we look around us and find ourselves beset with challenges on every side, both from without the community and from within the community. We stop and we wonder and maybe ask, why is this so? What have we done that Yahweh allows us to be so troubled? We listen for an answer, brothers and sisters and friends, and it comes. Yes, it comes from that only source of real comfort. We know that it comes from God's blessed Word, God's holy book of truth. The answer is given to us in such Scripture as Hebrews 12.6, where we are reminded that whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. But before we look at this aspect, let us look further in Scripture concerning this word, stumbling block or offense. Look at Luke chapter 17. Seventeen, verse one. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. Look at Romans chapter fourteen. Romans fourteen, we'll start at verse nineteen. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroyed not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. And for the lack of time, there are other good references that we could look at. One in Romans 16, one in 2 Corinthians 6. And if any of you are interested in those, I'll be happy to give them to you after class. But all of these passages deal with the word which means a stumbling block. We'd like to, I'd like to turn briefly... Uh, or a thought that we t- touched on briefly earlier, and that of whom the warm Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The rod of chastisement is in its place when it is in the hand of a wise parent. The rod of chastisement is in its place when it is in the hands of a wise parent. And again, I'm not going to have you look up Proverbs 22 and 6, but you know what it says. The hand of a wise parent, the rod of chastisement, is used to train a child in the way he or she should go. And one brother states this. We quote, No well-regulated household can exist without the presence of a rod of correction in one form or another. Your teacher this period would suggest that so it is or so it should be in the household of God. Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 24. 
He that spareth his rod does what? Hateth his son. How many of us in here would ever say that we hate any of our children? He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. When we really let these thoughts sink in, what can be more comforting than this? Dealing with this passage from Psalms, we offer the following quote once again. Let the mind ponder well over these words and tears of gratitude will drown the comparatively light affliction of the present. Let the lightning flash and the thunder roar. Let the dark and dismal clouds of trouble encircle. Yea, let them hide the very horizon. It matters not behind them all is the piercing eye of him who has told us that not a hair of our heads shall fall to the ground without his notice. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We might summarize our thoughts this morning with these four points. You and I as brothers and sisters in the truth cannot afford complacency. Apathy in almost any form is dangerous. Think of our children. Think of our grandchildren I don't have great-grandchildren yet, but I guess I should put that in there also. Apathy about their dress. Apathy about their activities. Apathy about their friends. Apathy about their conversations. And I could go on and on and on. Cannot be accepted by you and me. As students of God's Word, we cannot have apathy about those who offend the truth by incorrect doctrine and our walk. We must recognize that there will be stumbling blocks 
that we must deal with, which leaves no room for any form of apathy or complacency. Thank you for your attention.